Hello and welcome to How to Grow a CMO, where each week I will talk to marketing leaders from the biggest B2B brands in the world to understand their mindset, discover growth strategies and what it takes to be successful. My guest this week is Nigel Williams, Chief Strategy Officer at Kingpin Communications. This one is worth listening to because we talked about the importance of self-awareness as a CMO, what he learned from 15 years of field marketing. We talked about how he wrestled a bear, well, almost, and occasionally how he styles himself as Neo from the Matrix while steering clear of Superman tendencies. From the CMO crowd, this is How to Grow a CMO. My guest today is Nigel Williams, Chief Strategy Officer at Kingpin Communications, a leading B2B technology agency. Before moving agency side, Nigel served as CMO at Quadratech, a pioneer in email migration and Microsoft 365 management. There, Nigel had the usual CMO responsibilities, from brand to demand generation. He's also a long-serving serious decisions practitioner and spent 12 years in field marketing before becoming a CMO. Nigel, welcome to How to Grow a CMO. Thanks, Susanna. First, tell me, what were the early formative moments in your career that allowed you to grow into the marketing leader you are today? I'll take one real light bulb moment early in my career that was transformational to my thinking. And that was, I was uh, attending my very first sales kickoff in Boston, super excited to be in America for the first time. And I was very young and surrounded by a lot of very capable salespeople. And there was a breakout session. And during that breakout session, one of the top salespeople presented essentially how they viewed the product and the story. And it just changed my thinking completely. It was very compelling. It was high value. Uh, there was a real narrative to it. It had power. And I wrote until my hand ached. I got as much out of it as I could. I came back to the UK and started to adopt it. And I learned the power of B2B storytelling. What happens when you have a compelling story and how you can combine that with audience research to, to customize that story. And it changed my sales trajectory because I really didn't know anything about selling at the time. I was very young and just been given car keys and a technical summary. And uh, it was hugely helpful. And later on, I realized just how powerful that is in marketing. It's still at the very heart of a B2B marketing. And it's a, a lot of what I really enjoy doing is figuring out what's that compelling story that's going to um, get people to act. Do you think your studies in English literature have helped you with that, really identifying what a good story is? Absolutely. I think, you know, it was, a, it was a weird transition. If you've seen with Nail and I where um, they go on holiday by accident, that's how I ended up in the in the electronics industry by just applying to just about anybody who would um, had a graduate trainee program and ending up in an electronics company. Um, and it's tough to transition from, you know, Milton's Paradise Lost to English literature. And in the early days, it, it felt like I'd taken a wrong step and I needed more of this technical background. But as I've through my career, it is super helpful um, because a lot of the principles of messaging are really enriched by some of those those stories. Um, and I think just also being a writer and a content creator, having an appreciation of that is very helpful in marketing because at the core of all great marketing is good content. 
So you started your sales career back in the 1990s with uh, presentations like the one you've just outlined. How did that experience in the 90s shape how you look at sales and marketing today? I mean, there was, there's, I learned so much in such a, a short period of time. And I learned from you know, mature, experienced salespeople and it's also from sales leadership. I think one of the things that I learned early on was the power of focus. I worked with an American sales leader who was larger than life. He seemed like a crazy man to me. He would uh, sort of bear wrestle you um, upon meeting you. <laughs> and uh, he, he was a bit of a drinker and partier. But what he brought to um, our efforts in, in sales and marketing was absolute maniacal focus. And he decided there was one thing he was going to change, which was to create bigger deals. And all of our enablement, training, motivation was all geared towards that. And it became this tremendously exciting journey for us all. And he'd send these crazy emails with misspell in bold with 17 exclamation marks, really praising any step that we made towards getting where he wanted us to go, which is bigger deals. And I saw us go from being, you know, 250K was maybe a big deal to 8, 10 million was a big deal in a couple of years. Okay, it was a boom time. It was before the dot-com crash and, and everyone was doing well. But nevertheless, I really learned the power of focus and uh, that never left me. I think that's one of the, the biggest, most important experiences of, of that period of my life. So the bear wrestler, wrestling big deals out of you. I'd like to see how that really does uh, translate day to day. It's fascinating. Uh, but how did your career go from from that bear wrestling phase to, to becoming a CMO at Quadratech? So, uh, yeah, during, during those days, I ran a, a unit called the SWAT team. After I'd, st- I'd started in sales and done um, some work in, in sales, knew which way was up at least, I wanted to, to join a software company. Um, and so I joined and they weren't entirely sure what to do with me. Um, and they gave me a, something they called the SWAT team, which was going to be really a competitive support group working on the big deals. And I worked with that for a little while. And, and that was wonderful because you did a lot of research um, and you would get your one hour slot where you did the vendor presentation and your goal was supporting sales and, and the pre-sales team and putting a lot of research together, developing that compelling pitch and trying to, to help push the deal over the line. And that, that was reasonably technical. It was a very technical environment. And my team, I developed a team of a built team of five people across Europe. We were all dangerously semi-technical. We weren't coders or anything. Well, we certainly weren't uh, proper engineers, but we were conceptually pretty technical. And when there was a gap in the um, sales engineering organization, our, our own pre-sales, um, really because no one else wanted to do it. The company was struggling and a uh, few people were leaving and uh, it, it was a slot. So I went into that and that was really a bit of just working the night shift and and doing a pretty difficult job. But I, I learned a lot about the technical community from there and lo- learned a lot more about the technology. And from there, it's kind of a curious route. Um, it went really to the product side and I picked up product responsibilities for new products that we were bringing to market, typically through acquisition. And then there's nobody like marketing in that company very much. My boss used to say, no, you can't have marketing on your title. You're not having the M word. He used to call it the M word uh, <laughs> in those days. Um, but I was responsible for products and mar- field marketing, which is relatively small reported into me. And that was really the first time I had marketing responsibilities. 
from there, I moved into field marketing and I did about 12 years in field marketing. And I actually served, I consciously served my own apprenticeship towards the end of my period in field marketing. I joined uh, the office of the CMO, which was something I proposed to the company to say, I want to grow and develop. I effectively signed up for two jobs, supporting the CMO in his sort of corporate role, as well as uh, being a field marketer and supporting sales and him in, in that role, uh, which was pretty tough. But I, I do believe that studying and apprenticing yourself to somebody that's done the job before is tremendously helpful. And I, I could try to consciously learn what is it that a CMO does and how does that job, what makes uh, a successful CMO? So certainly times have moved on from when uh, it was the M word, as you put it. Why do you think there has been this kind of shift or do you think it was just in that one company uh, that you experienced that? Oh, no, no. I mean, we I used to joke about the marketing disrespect network when people were really badly behaved and say, welcome to the marketing disrespect <laughs> network. Oh, uh, do you feel happy you've joined? And then we'd, we'd try and laugh about it. But the, yeah, marketing was, was not well regarded um, in, in that particular company. At that time, they used to say, well, yeah, we won't bother with putting a proper marketing leader in place because there's not much budget and they'll leave pretty quickly. Um, and I think it's just changed. The, the industry's evolved. That company was, was, I think, particularly problematic, but it wasn't that um, uncommon for marketeers to be looked down upon by their peers in sales. And, and I think the world has changed because of the data-driven nature of marketing, the marketing tech stack, um, and marketing has become more of a facilitator at, at its best. And I often say, if we're not the facilitator, if not us, who? Are sales going to facilitate the process end-to-end? Probably not, because they're very focused on getting that revenue across the line. And it's it's very challenging and 90-day segments and all that pressure. Are product going to do it? Probably not, um, for a whole variety of, of reasons. Marketing needs to be orchestrating that, that value chain and aligning um, the functions as well. I think that's part of um, how marketing has continued to develop. Data, technology, um, and just, I think, the, the rise of digital business um, with the custodians of, of all that um, digital kit. And a lot of CMOs have as much tech as the CIO today. You're listening to How to Grow, a CMO podcast from the CMO Crowd. The CMO Crowd is brought to you by The Marketing Practice, the global integrated agency delivering growth for big name tech brands and ambitious B2B companies around the world. To find out more about us, visit themarketingpractice.com. Now, you've clearly had a, a number of uh, important mentors in your life, and, and one of them, your first CEO, who said to you, become a student of the industry and student of the customer. Now, why did those words have such a big impact on you? I think it's that outward looking focus, which I love. One of the pitfalls in tech is to be in love with your own technology and to be inward looking. And it's tempting because the technology can be really cool, but it's the application of it where it finds its purpose and its value. Um, And what he encouraged us all was, if you want to be heard, you've got to earn the right. And to earn the right, understand your customer's business, at least understand their business model, how do they generate value, their operating model, how does it function, just the basics of that even, and apply our technology 
to that and also understand that the industry in terms of who's influencing their thinking, um, who do they go to for thought leadership, have a, a sense of and a, an appreciation of the marketplace and the industry. And his view was always you know, do the research, dig in, do the hard yards. And when you speak, people will listen because you've earned a right to a hearing. And I think that is, is great advice um, because if you understand your audience and you apply your technology to it, you, you will get so much of a better hearing than that generic, you know, hey, we've got this wonderful technology and it's version 12.1 and here's the features and here's the benefits and the audience. <laughs> It's always telling the story, isn't it? Uh, now let's focus on the, the CMO role because uh, you say the main parts of being a CMO are having a clear set of goals, defining the measures of success and developing a great team. Explain why you've come up with that trio. Well, I think um, marketing can be badly served if it hasn't got the right inputs, first of all. So um, particularly back in the event-driven days, people would uh, often have much more of an activity-driven rhythm. And they're working really hard, but they're not necessarily aligned to the business goals. So I think firstly understanding what's the business trying to do? Where's it trying to go? Where's growth coming from? That's fundamental. And then aligning that to marketing. How can marketing support that? So build out um, a set of goals that really resonate with the business, because that will really help you with your stakeholders but it also makes the team feel great because you're getting to the heart of what the company does and you're related to that and you're relevant. So once you, you've understood that, you can start to really drive the organization, shape the organization to do that. And getting a great team on board, um, I always feel is, is just the process of setting out a journey with them and laying out the steps for that journey with them. And then the excitement of moving towards it. So if you're clear about what you're trying to achieve, you can do a lot in terms of gelling that team and aligning them to that and building out that plan. Um, and you've got to have good measures of success. So for every objective, it's always important to be able to determine what does success look like. Now break down, if you can, uh, that kind of first criteria why would you say that it is absolutely uh, so crucial, um, the very fact that you're saying you need to have a clear set of goals? What areas do you think CMOs tend to fall down on here? Well, it's just you can get tripped up, and I learned this in field marketing. I have one infallible, inviolable rule, which was share objectives, don't specify deliverables. So if you are just asked, I want this event, I want this um, set of gifts for my customers, I want this, um, it becomes impossible to partner because you don't understand the objective. So you've always got to go back to, what are you trying to achieve? How can I help? Because very often your stakeholders don't know the range of capabilities. They may not know what else you've got going on. And so trying to, to navigate that is really important. So I would say, you know, one of the most fundamental things is just breaking down what people ask for and what they expect, and always going back to the objectives and making sure that you're really clear that your priorities are aligned to the objectives of the company. And if you can do that, you're in pretty good shape because 
stakeholder management, you know, unfortunately, it's inward looking. It's not as much fun as working with customers, researching the market sometimes. And you will get some heat, some severe heat, particularly when sales are not doing well. Um, then marketing is going to get attract a lot of attention. If you're well aligned to, we've all agreed what's important, how we're going to grow. These are the goals that marketing set based on and the priorities that we've got right now. You're always able to adjust them, but it's a conversation that uh, it can be a peer-to-peer -peer conversation. It's not parent-child. Um, and it can be, unfortunately, and marketing's grown up a lot, but in my formative years, it was very often a bit too, particularly in field marketing, a bit too parent-child, which is we are the revenue leaders and you're here to support us, so do this. And it might be right, but not all the time by any means. So that, that I think, is fundamental, digging in. And as we know, children always hate being talked to like that anyway. And so many uh, marketing departments are exactly the same. Okay, let's move on to talk about the fact that you're a serious decisions practitioner. Tell me what you've learned from them regarding STP. So, yeah, segmentation, targeting and positioning is one example I, I always uh, use with, with Sirius because what serious decisions provide is benchmarks. They're now part of Forrester. Um, but I was attracted to them because they're a benchmarking firm originally. And so for any given um, task, they could give you a set of benchmarks and you could start to measure yourself against your peer organizations and see objectively how you were doing. That was really helpful. But also they provided a set of tools and frameworks. And very often these are analyst frameworks, which are too complicated to use operationally. You have to strip them down. But that's the that's the actual um, practice of it. So if I just take one one particular task, which is very fundamental, where do I spend my time? Who do I focus on? Which audience am I going after? To do that, you've got to segment the market, do some targeting, choose a segment, and of course be able to position yourself versus other players in that segment so you can win. And if you take relative targeting from serious decisions, it's a tool that enables you to score your ability to execute internally with the opportunity externally. And you can bring some science into the process of deciding where am I going to spend my time? Such a powerful tool because not only can you um, make better decisions, but you can also demonstrate the logic behind it. You can show the working out. If the answer to life, the universe and everything is 42, that's all very well. But, you know, how did we get there? And you can really go, well, look, I know it's a great opportunity, but you know what? Our ability to execute here is so weak. We're not ready. We need to do this in six months' time or nine months' time. Great um, idea that we should be targeting this audience, but we're not ready, for example. And over the years, you assemble a rich toolkit um, that helps you tackle these things in a repeatable fashion. And it also helps create a shared vocabulary. I brought my team to all the conferences, and we would create a shared vocabulary and a shared understanding of the world. Marketers are often separated by... Um, their backgrounds and where they come from. And you can use a term like lead, for example, and it means completely different things to, to different people. Demand generation, what does that mean? Some people bottom of the funnel, some people top of the funnel, some people an umbrella term for all of it. So developing that shared vocabulary was also very, very important for developing a strong team. And also the motivation of the team going to a conference typically once a year, a big conference, and sucking up all this analyst research and going, we're moving forward, and then aligning that to the steps on our journey. Now, you've mentioned field marketing. Of course, you held field marketing jobs before that of the CMO. Which do you prefer? 
I would take CMO any day because um, it's it, it's more demanding in some ways. But the the challenge with field marketing is you really you're working to serve both the local sales stakeholders. In my case, I was a mere field marketing person. So you've got a, a sales stakeholder locally and you've got the marketing function globally that you report into. And their objectives and, and how they see the world might be quite different, they typically are, and you are stuck in the middle. And that can be incredibly challenging. And um, when numbers aren't right from a sales standpoint, everyone is on your case. And in my case, I had geographic, wide geographic capability. So just even um, what people wanted from marketing varied actually by every sales director, not even every area vice president, but the sales leader in Germany might think differently to the sales leader that covered Austria and Switzerland, for example. And you had to try and work really hard to develop something where you, you could serve your constituents and deliver a good, uh, do a good job. It was a challenge because of that dynamic. Now, a lot of what the CMO role is about is, of course, appraising yourself as well, isn't it? Not just um, those in your team. So do you think you've got a clear picture of your own strengths and weaknesses? A uh, decent amount of self-knowledge. I think um, that comes over time. And I've had 30 years to kind of get to know myself in the workplace. And uh, over time, you you do develop uh, a decent amount of self-knowledge. I think it's not easy um, to acquire, but if you want to acquire it and it's worth acquiring, you can get there for sure. Just how important is it that you are self-aware? Hugely. If you're not aware of yourself, you have no understanding of your the consequences of your um, personality behavior um, on others. And if you do, you can talk to people about what you need. So one of the things I tend to do with, with people is to do something I learned from a, a coach were, was to do um, a, a sort of contracting uh, exercise of saying, for your success professionally and personally, what do you need from me? And I'll tell you the same. And I've never failed to find that exercise fascinating in terms of what it revealed about them. And I think they learned something about you in terms of what you need. So that kind of exercise is, is very, very helpful. Um, and just learning in some ways, you've got to, it's also about self-acceptance. Um, no one wants to work for Superman. I have once and quit because Superman doesn't need any help, you know, really. Um, and so being open about your own areas where you are not strong, what you find is a good team rally around you as well. And they, they will help you and support you. They know you're, where you're weak if you're open about it. They're like, yeah, let's take that away. That's not a Nigel thing at all. Um, he's not going to do, he's not going to do well with that. Let's take that away from him. And, and, and I know that they know that. And, and it's nothing wrong with that because we're all have our strengths and weaknesses. And I, I would like to think of it is, just turn over and want to find someone's greatest weakness, just turn over their greatest strength. You'll probably find there's a relationship. So don't get hung up on it. Yes, develop yourself, but at the same time also be conscious of who you are and accept yourself as best you can. So Superman, flying through this podcast, do you think Superman often gets in the way of good people being able to do their jobs properly? If you're too hands-on, does it mean that the team can't deliver? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something I learned early on and it took a while to adjust and adapt. And I've seen so much of its destructive controlling behavior. It's well meant very often, but it, it isn't helpful. And I try and have little um, aid memoirs to myself to remind myself constantly when I, when I had a team, a chief strategy officer, it's a, it's a team of one, but the whole company's your team. But in a CMO role, you, you've got a team and understanding how to get the best of them is critical. And I used to put up a PowerPoint presentation slide. It would say this slide intentionally left blank. And I would say that reminds me to give you space and stay out of the way. And uh, the more I did that, once you've got a team aligned, you all know where you're going. You know each other. You've got a common vocabulary. You can step back without abdicating and you'll see them fly. And I can honestly say, I think the best, one of the best achievements at Quadratech, it was self-originated by the team. Um, I had no involvement with it whatsoever. And they were slightly embarrassed about that, but I was actually proud of them and very slightly proud of me for staying out of the way. So now, how has your role developed as Chief Strategy Officer at Kingpin? What are you responsible for? Strategy is a very misunderstood thing. Um, it's a great book called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, which uh, uh, if you're interested is is, is just brilliant at explaining how in most places there's an either an absence of strategy or a poor strategy in place. And a strategist is not, or certainly a chief strategist, is not there to formulate the strategy um, and just um, ruminate. I think really the way we treat it is I joined as a, the first person that was not client facing that had time to work on uh, how do we make a better agency. And the, it's a lot of behind the scenes work and you're looking at a whole variety of different things that enable us to have a good strategy or to, let's say, to help to have people execute a good strategy. So you're enabling it more than formulating it. Things like, well, how do we look at the competition? OK, let's go build a competitive framework that we can agree on that's useful and then we'll populate it and we'll figure out how we're going to use it. If something like that is not in place. Let's put it in place. So the way we work is very practical. Um, we agree a series of tasks, um, initiatives that are going to get built out and I then deliver them and we move on. And that's really how we think about it. It's enabling um, building a better agency rather than having somebody you know, sitting on the top of the cloud ruminating about direction. Yes, I do a lot of research um, and that can feed into those initiatives but it's very practical. So tell me about uh, the recently merged Kingpin, TMP and Omobono. Tell us more about TMP and what do you think the business might become based on your current trajectory? Oh, it's super exciting. Um, the TMP group, as it is now, the three companies, um, is a really strong vision that drives it, which is to put together a, a B2B powerhouse. TMP are well known for their very high quality ABM offerings, very high quality process, people, um, the content, all of it, um, done a remarkably good job with that. And we want to sort of build on that vision to build a growth platform to enable B2B companies to grow faster. And to do that, adding uh, Omobono, our digital experience and branding, they've got some real magic in the digital design, user journey mapping, they get into sentiment analysis. They take digital 
to another level that we're not used to in demand. We, we will do buyer's journey, but it's nothing like that level. So bringing that to the table is incredible. And then what Kingpin has is all the media savvy and the data, um, every mortal different data type you can imagine orchestrated so that we can help understand an audience. When you put all of those pieces together, you really enable B2B tech firms to give them a capability to make a big jump forward. And that's really the vision with the growth engine is to support B2B tech firms in their growth. Okay, well, Nigel, it's almost all we have time for, but I do have a quick fire round of questions to put to you. So if you're ready, you'll have to respond as quickly as you can. So number one, what is your best leadership quality? I'm going to say that it's engendering self-belief in the team, getting people to believe in themselves and getting them to understand um, what their capabilities are. A bit like Neo at the end of the Matrix, maybe not quite as extreme, but just seeing people go from tentative to confident is an amazing thing. And I've always tried to create an environment that, that did that and I've got better at it over time. I have a vision of you wearing sunglasses now. Okay, so what is something most people get wrong about you? Uh, so I'm one of those people who talk a bit, think a bit. Oscar Wilde said, how do I know what I think till I've heard what I have to say? And so that's my process. And people might think that I like the sound of my own voice. I talk for the sake of it. It's just my process. I have to have some discipline around it, um, but I explain it to people. And it makes me a good collaborator. I can't sit in a room and and do stuff um, on my own. But some people go, oh, my God, he just talks too much. And uh, It makes a good podcast, though. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, you're under pressure to deliver a big project at work. You're behind and the deadline is approaching. What do you do? Reach out. Absolutely reach out to a group of people, swarm around the problem and get some help. There should be a principle whenever anyone is up against it. In, in the workplace, in a team, um, and across teams, reach out, get some help. We're all up against it now and again. And it's surprising if you have the humility to really ask for help, how much you can get when you really need it. Quid pro quo is you've got to be prepared to pitch in when other people need you. But that does make for a, a better workplace. Okay, I want your vision for the future now. How will the role of the CMO change? I think if you look at, at um, some of the principles of growth hacking and what growth chief growth officers do, you're going to see a lot of that. Um, I think it will continue to become more uh, data and um, application oriented, a lot of technology. That's a, a thread that's going to continue. But I think the principles of growth are going to become more and more encapsulated in that role. And so what you see in terms of a chief growth officer today, you'll see more of in, in a CMO over time and more and more uh, tighter and tighter involvement with sales. Um, if you look at the CRO, the chief revenue officer uh, and that role, um, it's, it's unclear to me completely how that's gonna work out in terms of the role of the CRO and the CMO, but sales, marketing and product have to come together to enable growth and the CMO is gonna be very much part of that. Okay, so should CMOs be required to have a formal marketing education? Well, I don't have one, um, but I've studied an enormous amount of my whole working life. I think what you have to have is an understanding and you can get there different ways. 
I think today it's it's really helpful to have a, a good grounding and to have an education. It's another form of yeah, it's learning, it's it's mentoring, it's it's a, a great way, a very structured way for you to get that knowledge. It's actually harder to do on the job because you've got to do your job and, and learn stuff at the same time. So yes, I think it's very very useful. I wouldn't preclude anyone if someone was a, a growth hacker who had had tremendous success and then was applying for a, a CMO role in exactly that space, for example, or a related space, why would you turn them away on the back on the basis of uh, they didn't have academic qualifications? All about knowledge and understanding. Is that a great way to acquire them? Absolutely. Okay, final question. What do you like to do to switch off? Take a long walk. Uh, it's great, uh, particularly working from home. Um, I'll do long walks in two modes. One is with headphones and I'll be doing my audible thing and um, doing a lot of um, uh, historical kind of travel writers at the moment. Brilliant. It's like time travel and travel at the same time. Or I'll take my cameras out. So I'm a black and white photographer in my spare time. It's a real passion. I have a website and I've got a little collection of um, old film cameras going back to design from the 1890s. And uh, yeah, I'll typically have something more modern than that with me. I'll be uh, looking for good light and a good subject and, uh, and capturing it. And I find that tremendously relaxing. Lovely. Well, Nigel, thank you so much. And I do hope you'll be listening to How to Grow a CMO on your walks in future. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Susanna. How to Grow a CMO is brought to you by the CMO Crowd and the Marketing Practice. The CMO Crowd is a community for senior B2B marketing leaders to network, share opinion and discuss challenges. If you would like to find out more about how you can join the crowd, visit cmocrowd.com.